I'm Hannah Young and you're listening to Brits in the Big Apple. My guest today is Ian Rivers, a former Special Forces officer turned adventurer. Ian has traversed mountain ranges, deserts and oceans across the world, typically relying on traditional navigation techniques to chart his way. Part of his training for this came in 2013 when he was kidnapped in Syria but managed to escape navigating his way to safety using only natural indicators. In May this year, Ian will set off from New York on a solo unsupported row across the North Atlantic to the UK, covering 3,100 nautical miles with only a sextant as a guide. Nobody has yet managed to complete such a journey, but Ian hopes to do it in approximately 90 days. Ian, it's so exciting to have you on Brits and the Big Apple, albeit momentarily, uh, given you are in New York prepping to leave to traverse the Atlantic. Welcome. No, Anna, it, yeah, thank you. I mean, that was a fantastic intro. I mean, it makes me sound amazing, but uh, really just an ordinary person just doing a sort of a, a really big challenge. But it's, it's fantastic to be in, the, in New York. It, it's taking quite a lot of... Um, maneuvering to actually get here in the, in the sort of like current pandemic state. Uh, and how is the prep going so far? And do you feel prepared? Yeah, so the really good news is that obviously I'm in the Big Apple and uh, my boat arrived on Monday. So the, the pairing has been reunited, which is um, really, really helpful in the sense that I feel really positive now that uh, once the first weather window comes along, we should escape. Well, I'd like to talk a bit more about uh, your um, planned journey, but before we do, it would be really interesting to give us a bit of a sense of how you've got to this point and, and your career journey so far. Yeah, so quite often people say, so I was born in London, um, which is landlocked, and um, the closest I ever got to water was the River Thames. And um, I always say, I've got, people got to cast their mind back to sort of, you know, I'm reasonably old, so sort of, when I was 10, you know, which is 45 years ago, London was a completely different place. There was no social media. Most people didn't have a TV. So you, you, you created your own little fun and adventures. And I, I, I described my childhood as very feral. We'd go out and play. And we wouldn't have watches. And the only reason we'd go home is because we were hungry. And uh, so we, we got really good body clocks. But that sense of adventure I got in London drew me to the army. And uh, when I was 18, when I finished college, I, I joined the army and um, straight away, I, I said to the, uh, the recruiter, I want to join the commandos. You know, I, I didn't want to be an ordinary soldier. I wanted to be a commando. And uh, that took me to Plymouth. And uh, Plymouth, for those that don't know, is on the sea. And um, luckily enough, I passed the commander course first time. I was very skinny, a skinny 18 year old, lots of spots to your sort of type type of affair. But um, yeah, I, I loved it. And I loved the challenge, the physical challenge of being in the commandos. The people there were, were fantastic. But we lived in a, uh, on a castle that overlooked the, uh, the sea called the Citadel. And for so six years, I, I lived on a castle that overlooked the sea. And I quite often would look across and generally the, the next point would be the Americas. And uh, I thought one day I would actually row back from there. And uh, I spent six years in the Citadel. And then I, I um, did the Special Forces selection. And uh, again, luckily for me, I, I passed first time and then spent the, uh, the next 20, 21 years with Special Forces. Wow, that's a really impressive career. 
uh, I was in the Territorial Army for a brief three years, and I have to say, I found the phase one training absolutely exhausting. So to pass your special forces selection criteria first round is really impressive. Is, it, is the recruitment process as grueling as it sounds? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that and you found it grueling, but the hardest thing I've ever done, you know, even today, was actually basic training. So when I, I, I was 18 years old, I was a civilian, wasn't used to the discipline, I wasn't used to the hard physical conditioning. And that transition to become a professional soldier, I found the actually the most, the toughest part. But it, it put you in good stead, really, to go on to the commander course. And you're obviously a bit more resilient then. A bit, a bit more mature, and then that followed on for um, SF selection. You know, I was older, more resilient, more mature, more experienced, and so I, I found I coped with it a little bit better, and I did basic training. And it sounds like, as well as your adventurous streak, you you have a sense of service, which I think is something that anybody who goes into the army feels. And can you just tell us a bit about what that means to you? What what the word service means? Yeah, so for me, I mean, I did 27 years in the military and, and I was discussing it last night with someone and it was a blur, you know, you know, 27 years, it, it was so enjoyable, but you kind of, you, you kind of create this bond with your fellow soldier, you know, both male and female that want you to serve and you're always looking after each other and you, you serve at the behest of the, your government, you know, so you, you go to all these different places and it doesn't matter of your sort of like religion your, your or your political views, you all do the same. And, um, but it's that bond that you create as a service person. And then certainly when you leave as a veteran, it's still there. You, you still look after each other. And um, I think that's the definition for service is, is, is that camaraderie that you have amongst fellow soldiers that sort of like follows you all the way through your career and doesn't leave you when you leave. So last night I was having drinks in New York with um, fellow veterans from uh, over here. And it was, it was exactly the same, that, that camaraderie of uh, former soldiers was, was fantastic. Um, and you have a really interesting twist in your story about your experience in Syria. Can you tell us a bit more about that? And what happened? Yeah, so I mean, I'd left the military, and um, I only can describe it as a gap year. So I didn't really know what I was going to do. So I, I was working for various organisations, and uh, I found myself in Syria with with a, with a few other people. And unfortunately, we got we got kidnapped, and it was at the beginning of um, the the Syrian sort of like civil war that's going on there at the moment, and. Um, we basically got kidnapped to order in a sense, you know, we, we got set up and we got kidnapped, but, but luckily we put a few measures in place and um, it was being moved and we got, we got ambushed and uh, I got separated in an ambush and um, there was lots of gunfire, that sort of thing that you can imagine those type of things. And I found myself on my own in the middle of Syria. Um, it, it was, it was winter. So it was just, it was about a week before Christmas kind of put it in context and it was wet cold miserable and then I had to sort of like find my way to the border on my own without getting captured again so I, I had a little mini adventure you know in, in that sort of sense and um, I used the natural natural indicator so I had nothing I, I literally had the trousers I stood up in a shirt and um, off I went in, into the night trying to work out which way was north 
And, um, you know, everyone says to me, oh, you must have used the North Star. You know, of course you'd have used the North Star, you're in the Northern Hemisphere. But it was cloudy, so I couldn't see the sky. And um, it was raining. And the, uh, the, the olive trees, there's lots of olive groves there, because uh, it's one of the main crops. And over the centuries, the trees have grown towards the sun. They just kind of go out lean, generally, generally in that direction, which is to the south. So having known that the trees grow that general direction, because I'd seen them during the day, big hand navigation. And um, I had the trees to my back, had a kind of little look to see which way they were going, which basically meant north must have been the other direction. And that was my initial indicator of which way I was going to go to north. And um, it, it was a bit of a guess as well, because these things aren't very accurate. And then as, as it became daylight, I hid in an olive grove in a big pile of rocks. And I set the task to um, confirm that I'd actually gone north. And the, uh, I was laying there thinking, oh, of course, at midday, the sun's going to be at its highest point and it's going to use the sun. And then, but it was cloudy, so I couldn't see the sun. It was, it was actually misty and foggy. And then about midday, I heard the call of prayer from a local village. And I thought, ah, oh, what side of the rocks does the moss grow on? And 80 to 90% of the time, it grows on the northern side of rocks and a little bit on the southern side. So I jumped up in my pile of rocks, had a little look around me, and there it was, the moss was on one side of the rocks and not the other. And that had actually confirmed, that, that was my second confirmation that I had actually been going north. And um, so the next two days, I just continued in that direction until I got to the border. Wow, that's an incredible story. Um, and how do, you, how do you play that experience forward? you talk about using natural indicators um, and, and I guess from your childhood as well, talking about um, being out in the woods and it, how do you play that kind of experience into a forward life? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a strange one because once I had escaped and I found myself on my own, I was kind of like, it was euphoric because I wasn't shackled anymore. I wasn't blindfolded anymore. I was in a, a different obviously in a difficult situation where I was but it was down to me and my experience of um, navigation before and um, time in the military really those experiences that kind of told me where I needed to go and where I didn't need to go but it, it, it kind of shows that with the experience you have you, you can get, you can have the confidence to get yourself out of the pickle that I was in and I had the opportunity during the day to um, get out of the rain and um, try and warm up but I always thought it would be the easy option because if, if I went into a building and someone came in, there's a good chance I'd be recaptured. So I, I took the hard option, stayed in a pile of rocks. I was getting wet and cold. And it, it was really a test, but a test for myself to um, not actually get recaptured. And I'd always thought that these soldiers wouldn't come into the rain and the mud to find me. They'd, they'd probably think oh, I would have gone into a building. So I actually did the opposite thing, what they'd have thought, and um, just sort of like kept kept in the wet, really, and got got cold, very cold, and uh, hypothermic. But I was happy. <laughs> it sounds really strange, but I was happy. And then, um, did you did you leave Syria when you arrived at the border? Presumably, you, you didn't go back. No. So um, we, when I got back, when I got out, so it, it took three days, and. Um, I thought it might be an issue getting across the border, but the, uh, the Turkish um, 
border guards, but they they were great. They they were actually expecting me. They um they were actually on the lookout for me. But uh, we set a company up afterwards to um, help people that had um, got in the same sort of situation, really, and and advise them that the situation was different now than it was before, and perhaps they they shouldn't be going in those sort of areas. So we use that kind of knowledge going forward to sort of like help people that wanted to go to challenging environments but that could kind of manage the risk a little bit better given the experiences that we'd had wow that's incredible and now you're about to take on a whole new challenge uh can you tell us more about what drove you to uh to, to come out to new york and prepare for your atlantic crossing yeah, yeah so it's, it's probably been 30 years in the making Hannah. You know, and um, from when I first joined 2-9 Commando, there was very, very few ocean rowers then. And uh, one of the first solo North Atlantic crossings was some, from St. John's in Canada to Black Sod Bay in Ireland. And it was done by a guy called uh, Tom McLean. And he used to be in the Special Forces in 1969, a long, long time ago. And uh, it was the same regiment as me. So I contacted him and... Um, I said, you know, I'm thinking of doing the same row as you did. You know, have you got any advice? And he said, why don't you go and do something that no one else has done? A complete challenge <laughs> that um, would be a first. And he suggested to me that I went from New York to the Isle of Scillies because he said no one has done that solo, unsupported. And he said, don't make it easy for yourself because that, that wouldn't really be a challenge. It wouldn't be an adventure. So he suggested I use celestial navigation to uh to navigate myself so i would use the sun and the stars and the moon to uh to navigate myself across without rather having a gps on the boat which would do the navigation for me because uh when tom first crossed there was no such thing as a gps he he had a sextant and the interesting thing was he didn't get a fix for 14 days so he set off from st john's and um it took him 14 days for for the sun to clear to get a clear view of the sky and um, he and all he said, it's real simple. Once you lead, you just got to head east. And um, it's as simple as that. And every day you've got a row. And as long as you've got that in your mind, he says you don't need all these modern gadgets. And so with with Tom in my in my ear, I um, I decided that a New York was going to be it. You know, and um, obviously New York's a fantastic place to leave from. But because no one else has done it. I decided that I would use celestial navigation. And my definition of adventure, you know, proper adventure, is, you know, you don't know the outcome until it actually happens. So I'm going to set off probably early next week if the weather window comes. And I won't actually know what the outcome of this adventure is because it's so, it's so you know, vast until I actually get to the other side, you know, or, or whatever the outcome will be. Wow. Gosh, that's incredibly inspiring. Um, how many hours do you think you're going to have to row in a day? Yeah, so I think what it look like. Yeah, so at the moment, I think it's going to be a 14-hour working day. Okay. So in that 14 hours, I'll probably be rowing for 10 of those hours. If if it, the conditions are particularly good, that might be longer. But if it's really rough and um, it's dangerous to be on the deck to row, I will have to sort of like hunker down and let the bad weather pass over me. So some days I won't row at all. And other days I might row up to 18 hours in a day just to make up the, the, uh, the pace really. Mm -hmm. um, 
And what do you think the biggest challenges are going to be? I mean, aside from, as you say, cloudy conditions, what else do you think is going to be um, particularly tricky? Yeah, so I think the, the biggest challenge for me really is going to be on my own because I'm on my own. And uh, someone asked me the other day, do you like your own company here? And I said, not particularly. You know, I, I like being in the company of other people. You know, I don't mind being on my own for a day or two days or maybe even a week. But this is going to be sort of like the minimum, really, of three months. And that kind of adds to the challenge, really, the psychological challenge for myself. You know, can I create that routine? Can I keep myself from sort of like getting depressed, you know, keep away negative thoughts? And I've been working with these sports psychologists at uh, Leeds Beckett's uh, University and, and working on really how, how using sports science, the psychology of sports science to, um, to, to, to recognise the triggers that sort of like make you down and knowing what they are and then sort of like putting positives in there to keep yourself motivated. And um, they, uh, they work with like rugby teams, football teams, mm -hmm. elite athletes. And it's the same principles, really, that, that I'll be employing as, as I row across. And, and, and that's the biggest challenge for me, really. I, I mean, it's going to be rough. You know, I'll probably get a little bit seasick to start with. And um, there'll be quite a few storms coming over. But I know they're coming. But the one thing I don't know what's going to happen is, is in the mind, you know, being, being alone for that period of time. Mm. And are there any particular tactics or techniques that you're going to deploy to help with that yeah so i've always been into mindfulness it's, it's sort of like a, a a technique for sort of like clearing the mind out of um, clutter really and just focusing on what you're actually doing i've mainly used it with sports persons because I, I i coach quite um hereford triathlon club i'm the head coach there and I, I work with the um the athletes to get them to feel how they they their body moves through the water when they're swimming how they can hold form when they're on a bike and, and, and things like this and it's sort of like bringing it back to form and it, it's the same thing so in the morning i'll i'll do sort of like 10 10 minutes of sort of meditation clearing the mind focusing for the day and then as i as i go through the day i'll just go through sort of like little sort of like anchors what they call anchors really so when i'm rowing feeling the body making sure it's working properly thinking about the mind is it are we using the body at its maximum efficiency and just little tricks like that, really. And if there's sort of like negative triggers or are, are there, and it might be that the seat's not rolling properly, you know, rather than just sort of like pushing through all day with an irritating seat, stop and fix it. You know, it's, it's rather than you've got to be on, if something at night is banging on the boat and you can't sleep, tie it down. It's those kind of things really to, to keep yourself positive. Mm. Yes, take control. Um, and are there, what are you looking forward to? There must be um, parts of the, the trip that you're thinking are going to be really fun. Yeah, I th the biggest thing I'm looking forward to at the moment, Emma, I mean, it sounds really strange, is watching New York disappear off the horizon. Huh. Because when that disappears, in, you, know, you know, over the other side of the horizon, it's actually begun. And the, the adventure has actually started. And for me, it's been 18 months in the planning. And there's been a few speed bumps to get to New York, from shipping to flying to quarantine in national lockdowns. And uh, to actually see New York just disappear off the skyline as I'm heading east 
that's uh, that's that's the thing at the moment that sort of sat right in front of me that I'm really looking forward to. Wow, that will be an incredibly profound moment. Um, uh, and you're raising money for charities. Tell us uh, who you're raising the money for and and why. Yeah, so I, I, I'm a strong believer that charity begins at home. You know, in, in sort of like where you come from and uh, support the local charities. So, so the, the first one is St Michael's Hospice, which is where you sort of like get your end of life care, your palliative care. And I don't think there's anyone in Herefordshire that hasn't had someone go through there. And uh, most of the, uh, it runs basically on um, charity donations. So part of the money that I raise will go to them. The biggest part really is going to the, the Special Air Service Regimental Association. And uh, they've created recently a, a program called the Sentinel Programme. And it's what named my boat after. So uh, my rowing boat's called Sentinel. And it, it's actually after their mental health initiative. And what they've done is they've brought the initiative down to the peer groups. So when you're in the military, we spoke about it at the beginning, you know, you, you create that bond of people. And I always say was when you wake up in the morning and you have a, a mini mental health crisis, you know, what do you do? Because you're, you're in such a state that you don't know what to do. And it's not as if you, in the UK, you dial 999 over here, it's 911. It's not as if you've got a broken leg or you, you, you know, you've got pain somewhere. It's quite a hard thing to quantify for people. So if you've got that network of friends or ex-veterans that just generally keep an eye on each other, you can just make a phone call or they might actually recognize the symptoms in you. So they've created the Sentinels, which they've um, given mental health first aid training to. And they're not mental health professionals, but what they are is they can recognize the signs and symptoms of mental health conditions of whatever ones they are. And then they can just sort of like signpost you to the right care. And instead of making a phone call to a charity that you, you, you don't know anyone about, you're more likely to open up to a, a former colleague or a friend or a fellow veteran. And it, it works as well as if, if the husband or wife wants to go there and say, look, my husband's suffering, but he's too proud to come forward. You know, it, it's that sort of level that someone might come forward and um so that that's where the bulk of the money is going to be raised for is for that new initiative that's great and that sounds like an incredibly powerful initiative um and when this airs you'll probably be midway through your row how can we keep in touch with uh your movements and track your progress yeah, so it's fantastic. So what I've got on the boat is a tracker. I don't have access to it because I'm, I'm not doing it. I, I can't see that because I'm using a sextant to navigate. But the Rose Sentinel um, webpage will have a tracking button. So you press the track button and a map will come up and it will show you exactly where I am because the, the tracker will ping to the satellite and to the location in, in Hereford. But the, the, the good thing about it is, is I'll be able to email my location where I think I am using celestial navigation. And the uh, the tracking company are gonna put where I think I am and you will see where I actually am. And uh, you'll be, I, won't, I won't know that, but you'll be able to see how, um, how accurate my navigation is. Am I within a couple of miles or am I actually quite a long way from where I think I am? Oh my goodness, wow. Oh. Fingers crossed you will be exactly where we see you and where you think you are. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I anticipate probably being a little bit out when I start, you know, just because they're tuning into the whole thing. But certainly by the middle of the Atlantic in sort of six weeks time, I should be within a couple of miles where, where, where I should be. Wow. 
and presumably uh, if people did want to uh, donate to your charities they will also find that information on the Rose Sentinel website. Yes so the Rose Sentinel website is uh, it's got a Twitter feed on there so you'll get Twitter updates going on that. There's the big red button which says donate and right next to that is the track button so that they as soon as the page opens it's right in front of you. Brilliant. Ian Rivers, you are a true adventurer. We wish you all the very best uh, for your upcoming journey. Uh, we'd love to have you back on the show at a later point to tell us how you got on. But in the meantime, thank you so much for coming on Brits and the Big Apple. Uh, Hannah, it's been a privilege to, uh, to talk to you today from the Big Apple. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.